Good morning. I want to thank Anthony for reminding me of Howard Hendricks' uh, gesture. I had the opportunity to study with Dr. Hendricks and, and Anthony, maybe that, that gesture uh, developed over the years because by the time that I took a class with him, it was rather dramatic and well-developed. Whenever he'd finish a story, uh, he'd, he'd kind of get off and kind of down to one side and then he'd kind of like that. And whenever he'd do it, we'd all uh, break out into laughter. I've brought two objects here this morning. This is the first, and here in my other hand is the second. And I'm going to drop that object. And then I'm going to drop it through this object. Any questions? I know there's something about large groups that have a way of hindering the asking of questions. I suspect that if it was just you and I and I did that, you'd be full of them. And I suspect that you're full of them now, it's just you're not sure that uh, you want to ask them. But the questions that are often asked here are, well, what kind of pipe is it? And it's a, just a regular old copper pipe. It's a rather thick-walled copper pipe, but it's just a normal copper pipe. And then people will generally say, well, this looks like a magnet. And you're right, it is. But then they say, is this magnetism? Well, you'll notice that the copper is not uh, attracted by a magnet. So why is it that it takes so long for that to go through there? If you want to see something really fascinating, come by my office sometime today, and the office over there in the, in the bookstore, and you can watch it go down through. It's a wonderful thing to see. Well, another question that some of you may be asked, why, is, why does it do that? Why does it take so long? Well, that's a, that's a question that you'll want to work on. We're going to uh, think together today, continuing to talk about cultivating four C's in our children, in our students. And we've looked at character and conviction. Today, we want to consider curiosity, and then tomorrow, creativity. So what is, what is curiosity? Samuel Johnson said that curiosity is one of the permanent and certain characteristics of a vigorous mind. But that's not really a definition per se, but that is fascinating. One of the permanent and certain characteristics of a vigorous mind. Curiosity. Well, what is curiosity? Curiosity, very simply, is the desire to know the desire to know. It is an eagerness to learn. And I would suggest to you that curiosity is related very, very closely to humility. The curious person is a humble person because curiosity is an admission that I don't know 
all there is to know, which really is the hallmark of humility. You see, a curious person is not so much a person who's good at answering questions. A curious person is a person who's good at asking questions. I'd like to make two observations about curiosity here. Uh, the first is that curiosity is an act of worship. Do you agree with that? Curiosity is an act of worship. You see, one of the highest tributes that you can ever pay to a person is to take an interest in what they have made, to be curious about what they have made. And when we're curious about what God has done and, and the world that he has made, that is a supreme act of worship. Curiosity, then, is an act of worship. I also like to observe that curiosity is natural. It's native. We all had it. Hopefully we still have it but we had it. This is a bit different than some of the things we've been talking about earlier of character and conviction, where they need to be developed. Curiosity is something we have, and it needs to be maintained. Bruce Alberts says that children start out as natural scientists, and school takes away all that natural interest. Is that what happens in your school? Is that what happens in your classroom? See, he's talking about science there, but science is one of those classes that's a natural. It's a fit with curiosity. It's one of the best places to cultivate curiosity. He also tells us that in the studies of, of students, that a majority of students say science is their favorite subject in first grade. But by the time they're in eighth grade, it is the least favorite subject. What are we doing with this natural, native curiosity? I'd like for us just to get a, a number of pictures of curiosity, and I want to, to illustrate this by talking about four people. The first three will be brief, and then the fourth person we'll spend a little bit more time with. The first person that, can, that helps me to understand curiosity and what it looks like was, a young, was, well, when I knew him, was a young man named Galen Brubaker. He was my cousin. He was just a little bit older than me, and he's the first person that I remember who really helped me to come alive to the world around me. He was interested in everything, had a very active imagination, but he was constantly wanting to, to look at this and see this, and, and he wondered about this. And... An image that I have of him is that after he was outside wandering around in the garden, he, came, he was staying with us for several days, and he was off by himself looking, uh, enjoying the world. And he came back toward the house, and he had, there was a lot of green all over his mouth. And there was some juice kind of running down the side. And my mom saw him, and she was a bit worried. And she says, Galen, what have you been doing? And he said, in such a memorable way, I ate a wum. <laughs> it was one of those big green tomato worms. Curiosity. A second example 
is a lady named Patricia Fripp. I was at a, a seminar in Colorado a number of years ago, and it was a communication seminar. And one of the, one of the other students at this seminar was this lady, Patricia Fripp. And I'd never heard of her before, but as I began to find out that she was a very accomplished communicator in her own right, but she was here taking this seminar. Found out she was one of the top 20 speaker, inspirational and motivational speakers in the business circuit in the United States. And so I had the opportunity to ask her, what are you doing here? You clearly know what there is to know about communication. Why? Are you taking this class? Why are you spending this money when you've already reached the top? And she said this. She said, there's always, always more to learn. And that's the way I stay alive and active and on the cutting edge is by continuing to learn, continuing to, to go to seminars and so on. A third example is a man named Peter Drucker. Never met him. He's, uh, he's dead now, died several years ago, but he was a, he was a leadership guru one of the top management consultants in, in the world. They say he remained active into his uh, 90s. I believe he died at 94, but he, was, he stayed a very active person and continued to make significant contributions to the field of leadership and management. And of course, everyone is curious, how is it that he can, he can stay so active and continue to make these kinds of contributions? And he said this, he said, I think part of the secret is that every three years I choose a new subject and I delve into that and I learn everything that I can about that new subject. Every three years, something that I know nothing about before. Curiosity. A third or a fourth example is Thomas Edison. Edison was one of my two childhood heroes. The other one was Sitting Bull. Edison, of course, was a man who's known for his, for the number of inventions. It was over a thousand inventions that he has patents for. Because he was a childhood hero, I looked forward to the time when I could visit some of his labs. And a couple years ago, our family had a chance to uh, see uh, the lab that Edison built in Menlo Park, New Jersey. And uh, this is, that is the uh, picture of that particular lab. It was a lab I wanted to see. Well, this lab is no longer in New Jersey. It's in Detroit at the Henry Ford. And so uh, our family spent a couple days there we went into this uh, building. The first floor was uh, not terribly memorable, but then they took us to the second floor. And on the second floor, which looks like this, we see something of a recreation of the lab as it was when Edison uh, developed the, uh, an advanced version of the storage battery, but also the phonograph. And you see the chair sitting right there. And over here, you can maybe make out the phonograph. Henry Ford 
Thomas Edison's friend, realized something of the momentous nature of what Edison was doing and, and his inventions and the kind of effect that they would have in the world. And so he asked for permission to take the lab, which by this time had been abandoned, and take it apart and move it to Detroit and to be part of this museum. And when he had it rebuilt in Detroit, he came and, and he tried to put everything back in place just the way it was. He hired some of Edison's old assistants that had worked here in the lab, and they, they did the best they can to recreate it. And then when it was all there, he calls up Edison and he says, I want you to come for the open house. When Edison comes, he, he asks him, he says, Edison, where was it that you were sitting when you first tried out the phonograph, when you first tested the phonograph, and it's right where that chair is sitting? And he said, Edison, I want you to sit down. So he sat down, and they brought a phonograph for him, and they reenacted the original recording, the first recording. The first recording is not available. It, um, it, was, it was too poor. They were able to play it three or four or five times, and then the recording was, uh, uh, was no longer usable. But here at the 10th year anniversary of that, when they reenacted it, they made a recording that is still available, and it goes like this. had a little lamb was that first recording when they finished the reenactment Henry Ford asked to have he, he told some of the workers go downstairs and get a hammer and nails and they came back and they hammered they nailed that chair to the floor and Henry Ford said no one should ever sit in that chair after that when we were there we were visiting we asked one of the guides we said is that is that the way it's been over the the many years since has anyone sat in that chair since and the guide got a rather sheepish look on their face and said you know there's a lot of times when you're up here by yourself and there's no visitors around Edison was a curious, a curious boy. I'd like to read just a couple short chapters from a delightful book, The Story of Thomas Alva Edison, The Wizard of Menley Park by Margaret Davison. 
Once there was a boy who asked a lot of questions. His favorite word was why. Sometimes he got answers to his questions and sometimes he didn't. For sometimes people didn't want to bother with his questions. His own father grew angry with him. One day he said, Tom, all you are is one big question mark. I have a question mark for a son. But Tom didn't stop asking questions. He was curious about everything in the world. Thomas Edison was born over 100 years ago in the town of Milan, Ohio. He was born on February 11, 1847. At that time in all of America, in all of the world, there were no telephones, no automobiles, no radios. In all of the world, there was not one electric light. As soon as he could speak, Tom began to ask questions. Many times he was not happy with other people's answers. So when he grew up, Tom worked out his own answers, and the special answers of Thomas Alva Edison were inventions. One invention was the phonograph, another was motion pictures, and Tom's biggest invention of all pushed back the dark. It was the electric light. Chapter 1, Tom's First Experiment. When Tom was four years old, he noticed something odd in the barn. He noticed that the family goose sat on her eggs all the time. Why does our goose sit on his eggs, mother? Tom asked. Because he wants to keep them warm. But why? Because they will hatch if they stay warm, his mother answered. But what does hatch mean? Tom wanted to know. Hatch means coming out of an egg, Tom. It means being born for a baby goose. Mrs. Edison picked up an egg. See how warm it is? When it's ready, a baby goose will come out of this shell. And then gently she put the egg back on the nest. The eggs have to be warm to hatch? That's right, Tom. Tom's family was worried. Our hours had passed since they had seen him. It was night, and they couldn't find Tom. His father, his mother, his oldest sister, Tanny, looked through the house for him. They looked in the yard, and then they looked in the barn, and they found Tom curled up on the nest. What are you doing, Tom Edison? His father roared. Tom had an answer ready. He was hatching eggs. He was making baby geese. His sister, Tanny, burst out laughing. You're the goose, Tom Edison, she said. Just look at those eggs. Just look at your pants. Poor Tom, he was all egg. Tom was only four, but he was much too heavy to sit on an egg. He was only four and very disappointed. He started to cry. This was Tom's first experiment, and it was a failure. No More School, Chapter 2. In 1854, the Edisons moved away from Mellon. They, the family went by train to Detroit, and there they got on a riverboat called the Ruby, and they went west on the St. Clair River until they came to Port Huron, Michigan. This was their new home. Tom started school. The schoolmaster, Mr. Engel, had a terrible temper. He didn't like children very much. Most of all, he didn't like Tom Edison, who asked so many questions. One day, Mr. Engel lost his temper. Tom Edison, he thundered, all you do is ask silly questions. There is nothing I can do with you. Your brains are addled. When Mrs. Edison heard what the schoolmaster said, she was angry. Addled? Weak in the head, her son was not addled. But she couldn't say as much for Mr. Engel. Mrs. Edison took Tom out of school. She would teach him herself. Tom never went back to school in all his life. Thomas Edison spent only three months in school. Tom Edison spent only three months in school, but he was a great reader. He read all kinds of books. When he was nine, he read a science book. It told about chemicals and carbons and electricity. Electricity, how Tom loved that word. This book changed his life. He decided to become an inventor. And Tom never did lose his uh, disdain for people who had been trained in traditional ways. Uh, he, he, he always was a bit suspicious of schools and teachers because of his experience. In fact, they tell the story how that after he was very successful and, and famous, a lot of people wanted to work for him. And a mathematician, a college-educated mathematician, came to him and said, would, 
Could I work for you? And Edison said, well, I'll tell you what, before you work for me, before I hire you, I need to give you a test. And he brought out a piece of glassware that was just very elaborate and had all kinds of curves and so on. And he said, I want you to figure up the volume of this piece of glassware. How much liquid would this hold? And the, he said, do you think you have enough mathematical background in order to do that? And the, the fellow said, well, I think so. And of course, in his mind, he was thinking of all of his formulas for, uh, for cylinders and for spheres and so on. And so he sat down and he began to work and he began to do measurements and, and so on. And, and Edison let him work and let him work. He let him work for, it was a rather elaborate piece. He let him work for a couple hours. And then finally, when the fellow just about had it figured out, Edison came along and he said, let me show you how to find the volume of this. And he fills it full of liquid, pours the liquid into a measuring cup. And he says, that is the volume. You don't have a job. Edison, a very curious man, a man who had all kinds of questions about the world that he lived in. One more story of his curiosity. He, he read a lot, and anything he would read, he would ask questions about. I wonder about this. I wonder about this. I wonder if I could do this. And one of the things he read was that, that gas makes things lighter. And so, you know, he, he read about these balloons that you could fill up with hydrogen gas, and, and it would float. And so he, he, he read that. He also heard that if you take seedlets powder, which today we call it baking powder, but baking powder is just another form of seedlets. If you take seedlets powder and you put water with it, it produces gas. Well, he's saying, well, I wonder if I'd fill something with that kind of gas, if it would float. He said, in fact, if I filled myself with that kind of gas, maybe I could fly. And so um, he was not only curious, he, he wanted to find the answers to his curiosities. But in this case, he didn't actually try it on himself. He tried it on a good friend, a friend uh, that just worshipped Tom. And whatever he asked him to do, he would do. And, and Tom went down to the drugstore, bought two bottles of Seedlitz powder, which was quite a bit, and uh, had him, he, he had his, his friend shovel it down. And then he had him drink some water so that it would begin to produce this gas. And so he, he, his friend did all this. And then he, Tom said, now, now stretch your arms out. And he said, well, flap them, and fully expecting to see his, his friend just kind of rise into the atmosphere. But instead, his friend did this, and then he sank. And he fell down, and he was deathly sick. The, his friend almost died from it. Curiosity. How, how can we? How can we nurture this kind of native curiosity in our students? What can we do? What are the conditions that cultivate, that develop curiosity? As, nature, as teachers, we can nurture curiosity by creating the conditions where curiosity thrives and minimizing the conditions that hinder it. So what are those conditions where curiosity thrives? What are the conditions that poison that poison creativity. So conditions that nurture curiosity. First of all, teachers who are curious. A friend of mine who really enjoys science was telling me recently that it was his eighth grade teacher that, that gave him that love. He said, he said my teacher, whenever we would 
would be in science class, we'd do an experiment, we would do an investigation, we would, we would think about this or talk about this, the teacher was more excited than any of us. The teachers, oh, I wonder what's going to happen, and really get into what they were uh, looking at. Howard Hendricks said, if you want your students to bleed, you have to hemorrhage. You want your students to be curious? You have to really be curious. We have to be teachers that feed that kind of curiosity in our students. My parents did really well with this. Uh, Mom and dad made a home in which there was lots of space for exploration and discovery. Oh yeah, there were some spaces that were off limits, but then there were some other spaces that uh, were uh, available for all kinds of investigation. When I was five, my, one of my brothers came home from school and just kind of mentioned in passing that what they were studying that day were the Cherokees. There was something about that word. The Cherokees just captured my imagination. And I began to pump him with, for, who are they, what are they? And then when we were at a, co a cousin's place, they had some encyclopedias that had a bunch of pictures of the Indians and I just couldn't get enough. My mom and dad recognized that interest, that curiosity, and, uh, and, and fed it. Mom, uh, she made an Indian vest for me and, and she helped me uh, fix up a, uh, a uh, trying to say, it's a Travis is what the, uh, the Indians would have called it, but to pull behind our dog and I didn't have a horse, so I had to use the dog. And uh, they gave me an Indian headdress kit for Christmas, gave me books on Indian crafts and lore. Uh, Dad took me to places where I could hunt for arrowheads and uh, helped me to make a, a flute. Just fed that curiosity. Took me to the library and where I would just get stacks and stacks of books on Indians. It's an interest. It's a curiosity that continues to this day. Some of my teachers did so well with this, at feeding curiosity in their students. They would, they would see things. I know one of the things that I, I ran across somewhere along the line was that there is gold in ocean water. Did you know that? There is lots of gold in ocean water, dissolved. I know it doesn't sound like a whole lot. There's about an average of about 13 parts per trillion of gold in ocean water. It doesn't sound like much, but if you were to go, there's a lot of water in the ocean. And if you were to get all the dissolved gold out of ocean water, you'd have somewhere around between 10 to 15 trillion dollars. Well, somewhere along the line, I heard about this, and I thought, well, that's what I need to give my life to, is to getting all the gold out of the ocean water. But, and so I had to figure out, but how do you do that? How would you get the gold out? And so when our family went to the ocean, one time I, I took along a couple five-gallon buckets because I was going to bring some of this back so I could, you know, get started on the process. Well, my teacher, my fifth-grade teacher, her name was Mrs. Walker. She was a, a wonderful black lady. She never could get my name right. I was always Stevie Blueberry to her. And, uh, but but she, she I, you know, I was telling her about how I wanted to get this gold out of ocean water. And she said, well, how can I help you? And uh, she took me to the high school and, and, and had me meet the, the chemistry teacher there and so I could ask her these questions. She took me to the local college library so I could check out the books on analytical chemistry to figure this out. I never was able to actually perfect the process. I got discouraged when 
I found out that it was going to take more money to get the gold out of the seawater than there was in the seawater. Mrs. Walker. It was over that time then a few years later became fascinated with a plant called chlorella. Chlorella paranoidosa, TX1705 was the specific kind. I, can't, I don't know where that interest came from, but somewhere along the line, it's probably in one of the classes or something, but I had another teacher, Mrs. Tucker, that took an interest in that. And she wound up taking me, it was about 50, 60 miles away to uh, uh, the University of South Carolina library and where I would just spend days uh, reading and copying uh, on, on this particular algae to wound up becoming uh, a science project that uh, has left an indelible mark on who I am. This summer, Cynthia and I took our children and uh, Steve Russell joined us uh, for a day or two as we were visiting some places in Canada. We were in Montreal. One of the places we went to was the insectarium there in Montreal. And as we went around, we were sawing, seeing all these different kinds of insects and uh, they, they have them from different countries and so on. You know, we were just all ooing and eyeing, and it was like, oh, come over, take a look at this. Isn't this unbelievable? You know what our, our youngest boys are doing this summer? They're collecting insects. When teachers, adults are curious, that cultivates curiosity in our students. You might say, but what if I'm not? What if I'm not curious? Well, you were, and you can be again. I would encourage us all to force ourselves into moving into places, again, that aren't as comfortable, that aren't as ordinary, and allow us to give our space to come alive to the wonderful, wonderful, fascinating things that are in our world. What are the conditions that nurture curiosity? Secondly, spaces that are rich with possibilities. How can I make my classroom a place that is fascinating? Just offer a few suggestions. Classroom libraries. Can we surround our students with books so that when they have free moments and uh, they have opportunity, they can go over and just, wow. Keep lots of books close, books that are of interest, that are tailored to our students, their ages, and so on. I remember growing up, the, encyclop the set of encyclopedias, the world book, was just a, a constant companion. Whenever there was something to, to learn about or you wanted to know about, you could go. You could go to the encyclopedias. We can turn our classrooms into museums. Teachers really should be shameless collectors, collecting all kinds of fascinating things. Bring them into our classrooms. Our, our our students should know that whenever they find something of interest, that they're welcome to bring it to school, and that they ought to know that when they do, that the teacher's going to hyperventilate about it. In curiosity, not in anxiety. <clears throat> Classrooms outdoors. Outdoors, nature can be a fascinating, a, a space rich with possibility. You know, a word here again about the science. Science classes, science courses. Uh, this is a wonderful place to cultivate curiosity. There's no reason why science can't be the favorite course that our students take. 
the possibilities for curiosity and discovery are endless. And um, now I happen to think that every course ought to be a favorite course, but that includes science. What are the conditions that nurture curiosity? A third are teachers who train students how to really see. Teachers who train students how to really see. Eugene Grace said this, if I were to prescribe one process in the training of men which is fundamental to success in any direction, it would be thoroughgoing training in the habit of accurate observation. It is a habit which every one of us should be seeking ever more to perfect. The habit of accurate observation. Men and women, this is a place we have tremendous opportunities as teachers to develop. I'd like for you to get a vision here. So we'll spend a little time on this. Really seeing takes time. To really see takes time. Have you ever been to on a nature walk and where you just kind of ran through the process? You just, you were talking and walking and you wound up, you say, you know, I really didn't see much. Not even sure what was there on that nature walk. Compare that to the times when maybe you're by yourself and you just meander and you can stop and look. Maybe you even sit down. It's when you take the time to see that you can really begin to see. Close by we have the Erie National Wildlife Refuge and a week or two ago I was talking to the eagle spotter for the refuge and he was saying that there are nine eagles that he watches in uh, in this area there's seven different locations that he goes to but he, he sees nine eagles at these locations but he said this he said when I go to these different places I generally have to wait 20 25 30 minutes before I see so most people give up long before then Really seeing takes time. One of the best ways to illustrate the power of observation is to, to uh, tell a story. And it's a story that's used to illustrate this in uh, a variety of venues. I'm going to take the time, though, here to read it to you. It's called The Student, the Fish, and Agassiz. It was more than 15 years ago that I entered the laboratory of Professor Agassiz and I told him I'd enrolled my name in the scientific school as a student of natural history. He asked me a few questions about my object in coming, my background, and what I wished to do with the knowledge I might gain, and if there was any area of study in which I had a special interest. I replied that while I wished to be well-grounded in all departments of zoology, I purposed to devote myself specifically to insects. When do you wish to begin, he asked. Now, I replied, this seemed to please him, and with an energetic, very well, he pulled down from a shelf a huge jar of specimens in yellow alcohol. Take this fish, he said, and look at it. We call it a hamulin. By and by, I will ask you what you have seen. With that, he left me, but in a moment, returned with explicit instructions as to the care of the object entrusted to me. No man is fit to be a naturalist, he said, who does not know how to care for his specimens. In 10 minutes, in 10 minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. 
and I started in search of the professor, who had, however, left the museum. When I returned, my fish was dry all over. I dashed the fish with fluid, as if to resuscitate it, and looked with anxiety for the return of a normal appearance. This little excitement over, nothing was to be done but return to a steadfast gaze at my mute companion. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. At an early hour, I concluded that lunch was necessary, so with infinite relief, the fish was carefully replaced in the jar, and for an hour I was free. On my return, I learned that Professor Agassiz had been at the museum, but had gone and would not return for several hours. My fellow students were too busy to be disturbed by continued conversation. Slowly, I drew forth that fish, and with a feeling of desperation, again began to look at it. No instruments were allowed me at this stage, only my two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. I pushed my fingers into its mouth to see how sharp its teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that this was nonsense. At last, a thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, to my surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. Just then, Professor Agassiz returned. That's right, he said. A pencil is one of the best eyes. I'm glad to notice that you keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked. And with these encouraging words, he added, well, what's it like? He listened attentively to my brief rehearsal of the structure of parts whose names were still unknown to me. The arched gills, the movable operculum, the pores of the head, the fleshly lips, the lidless eyes, the lateral line, the fins, the forked tail. When I had finished, he waited as if expecting more. And then with an air of disappointment, he said, You haven't looked very carefully. Why, he continued, you haven't seen one of the most conspicuous features of your fish, which is as plainly before your eyes as the fish itself. Look again, look again. And he left me in my misery. Still more looking at that fish. But now I set myself to the task with greater determination and discovered one new thing after another until I saw how just the professor's criticism had been. The afternoon passed quickly, and when towards its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied, I'm certain I don't. But I do see how little I saw before. That's the next best thing he said earnestly. But I won't hear you now. Put away your fish. Go home. Perhaps you'll be ready with a better answer in the morning. I will examine you before you look at the fish. Now this was disconcerting. Not only must I think of that fish all night, what this unknown but most visible feature might be, but I must give an account of my findings the first thing the next morning. I had a bad memory. So I walked home by the Charles River in a distracted state with my perplexity before me. The cordial greeting from Professor Agassiz the next morning was reassuring. Here was a man who seemed to be as anxious as I that I should see for myself what he saw. 
Do you perhaps mean, I ask, that the fish has symmetrical sides with paired organs? He's thoroughly pleased, of course, of course, repaid the wakeful hours of the previous night after he had discoursed most enthusiastically, as he always did. Upon the importance of this point, I ventured to ask, what should I do next? Oh, look at your fish. Look at your fish. And he left me again to my own devices. In a little more than an hour, he returned, and he heard my new catalog. That's good. That's good, he repeated. But that's not all. Go on. Go on. And so, for three long days, he placed that fish before my eyes, forbidding me to look at anything else or to use any artificial aid. Look! Look! Was his constant instruction. This was the best entomological lesson I ever had, a lesson whose influence extended to details of every subsequent study, a legacy the professor left me as he left to many others of inestimable value, which we could not buy and from which we would never part. Really seeing takes time. Really seeing takes conscious effort. One of my favorite literary characters is Sherlock Holmes. And those of you who've read uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, stories about him know that he was able to, to tell so much about a person just by looking at them, just by observing things about them. And often that person would be so surprised. How did you know that? Who told you? And it wasn't that anyone did, it's that he was able to observe so well. A friend once said to Holmes, Holmes, you see everything. And his response was, I see no more than you, but I've trained myself to notice what I see. Someone said that if you make a conscious effort to notice your surroundings, your curiosity will be turned on. But it's a conscious effort. Wherever you are, whatever you do, notice the details around you. Notice the weather. Notice it fully. Just how cold and wet it is. Did it make you shiver? Was the sun warm enough to soak you through your clothes and warm your skin? It may seem boring and unimportant, but really notice the details around you. How the sun reflects off different objects. Hear the noise people make while milling around a doorway when they're waiting to get in. Notice what people are wearing. Notice individual people. Don't see them as a crowd. In short, notice everything. When you begin to make a forced effort to see details in everything, you're training your mind to be awake and alert. You've switched on your curiosity button. Really seeing takes conscious effort. Really seeing also makes even the most commonplace interesting. Almost everything is fascinating when we really see, even the most ordinary and commonplace. For the stamp collector, even how many perforations there are on the side can be of real interest. It can also be of real value. You know, you might want to do this. If you take your hand, you ever done this? Take your hand and you hold it up and where there's just a little space between two fingers and, and look toward a light 
And these lights might not work the best because of the, uh, the markings in them. But if you hold it up and look through it, and it's fine, go ahead. Uh, if, you, if you move that space smaller and smaller, you actually maybe doing it over toward the light through that window would work better. When you get it to just a really thin space, you'll begin to see lines, two or three lines in there. Those lines are evidence for one of the most important understandings of the nature of the physical world. Those lines are evidence for quantum mechanics, that understanding. Even the ordinary, simple things are interesting when we really see. What are the conditions that nurture curiosity? Questions. Question. What is that? Why is it made that way? When was it made? Who invented it? Where does it come from? How does it work? Why? What? When? Who? The reporter's questions are the best friends of curious people. I took a psychology class in my first or second year of, of college, and the teacher told us on the first day that if you make above, if you average over 30% on my exams, he said, you'll, you'll pass this test. And we thought, wow, this must be a, a hard course. I remember one of the students in the class, he sat in the middle, front middle, every day. And this person just asked questions after, and I thought they were the most inane, the, the most, why would you even ask? But he did, he would just ask all kinds of things. One day we were talking about uh, Pavlov slobbering dogs and behaviorism and, and all of that. And, and we were kind of intrigued with the theory. He puts up his hand and he says, oh, what kind of dogs were these? Those were the kinds of questions that they just asked, and in fact, there a lot of the other students started kind of almost making fun of, of how curious he was. That boy, that young man, was the only one in the class that made a perfect score on that uh, teacher's exams. Questions, questions. Take a quarter and see how many questions you can ask. What, what's the D or that, that small D or P? What's that about? Why does, what does E pluribus unum mean? What, what are all those little ridges around the edges? The answers to those three questions, by the way, are all incredibly fascinating. We ask questions. A fifth condition that nurtures curiosity is the unusual. We said we can find interest in the ordinary, but it's also possible to cultivate curiosity by talking about the unusual. Do you know that this little church down here at the corner, that one of the deacons in years past was John Brown, the abolitionist John Brown that, was, uh, that died at Harper's Ferry and led the slave revolt? He was a deacon right down here at this church. He was also the postmaster here in Guy's Mills for a while. Just about four miles from here is where his house was and the ruins of his tannery are still there. Those kinds of out of the ordinary, fascinating details are all around us. They're in your communities, they're in, they're in books all over the place. And those are things we can use to inspire and cultivate curiosity. There is so much intriguing and fascinating in our world well, what then are the conditions that hinder curiosity? I would like to give two. First of all, an atmosphere of don't. Don't touch, don't go there, don't step on that, don't, don't, don't. Now, there is a place for rules. There is a place for classroom policies. But they shouldn't set the tone. 
That shouldn't be the dominant feeling of our classrooms. I know sometimes I go into homes, places, where I get this sense that I really should just keep everything to myself, that if I move too quickly or too much, something's gonna break. Those are not the kinds of atmospheres that, that uh, cultivate curiosity. Secondly, an atmosphere of boring. So what? Who cares? You're interested in that? We should resist labeling anything as boring. Don Marquis was a poet, and one of his uh, most well-known uh, sets of poetry had to do with a, uh, were from the perspective of a cockroach named Archie. And Archie would, at night, would come out and jump on the keys of Don Marquis' keyboard, or his typewriter, at least that's what he said. And so these poems were supposedly uh, the cockroaches' poems. And uh, there's one called Takes T Talent by Don Marquis, but remember, this is from a cockroach. He says, there are two kinds of human beings in the world. So my observation has told me. I should have put the, the poem up here so you could see it, but remember, since, it's, since he can only type by hopping on a, on a key, one key at a time, he can never do capital letters, so there's no capitals here in the poem. And he also couldn't do punctuation. There are two kinds of human beings in the world, so my observation has told me, namely and to wit, as follows. Firstly, those who, even though they were to reveal the secret of the universe to you, would fail to impress you with any sense of the importance of the news. And secondly, those who could communicate to you that they had just purchased 10 cents worth of paper napkins and make you thrill and vibrate with the intelligence. What kind of teachers are we? Do we cultivate an atmosphere of boring or one that helps our students to thrill and vibrate. There's so much to learn, so much to know. We've looked at five conditions that nurture curiosity. Two teachers who are curious, spaces rich with possibilities, teachers who train students how to really see, questions, the unusual. We've looked at two conditions that hinder curiosity, an atmosphere of don't and an atmosphere of boring. May the Lord help us as teachers to do really, really well here. Because I'm convinced that Christians should be the most curious people on the earth. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.